CBS Friday. TV's hottest show is Fire Country. I'm not a hero. I'm in orange for a reason. They're taking 12 months off your sentence. You're free. Lady. With a special epic season finale. Now that I'm out, I need something to get me up in the morning. You are a firefighter. You used to be. That will be unforgettable. In the name of your life's happiness, go get your girl. She's getting married tomorrow. Says, when do you let anything get in the way of what you want? The Fire Country season finale, Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Now available in more homes than the Pac-12 network, we are the podcast of champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. Liner, gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, to the Podcast of Champions. I'm one of the co-hosts, Ryan Abraham, publisher of uscfootball.com. This won't be a solo show today, but it will be two sort of individual shows. David and myself were not able to be in studio or record at the same time this week, and we skipped last week. So we wanted to do a show. We're going to do two separate segments and divide it up that way. I haven't listened. He sent me a segment. I haven't listened to it yet. David's supposed to answer all the questions and talk about uh, Chip Kelly. And the uh, report that came out that uh, the Oregon Ducks teams that had like crazy offense with all those place cards that had celebrity pictures on them, that those cards meant absolutely nothing. It was just a distraction. So I think uh, we, Dave was going to give his thoughts on that and answer a bunch of the questions. And I was going to get to the college football topics at hand and discuss all that with all of you. Since David's not big into the offseason content of college football and newsy stuff, and I love all that stuff, uh, that's what we're going to do. If you want to send us a question for future shows, you can email us, pack12podcast at gmail.com, or you can call or text us at 424-532-0678. You can tweet us at pack12podcast. Go to our website, pack12podcast.com for all of our content, and we're over on Reddit, reddit.com slash r slash podcasts of champions, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please follow us there. Rate us with a five stars. We appreciate that. And, you know, if you're on the Apple Podcast and want to leave a critical review along with your five-star rating, we appreciate that as well. No one likes getting the trash talked about them more than we do. So those are really funny when you guys get to do that on uh, the Apple Podcasting app. So please do that. Continue that tradition. Uh, we love it. But you got to leave the five stars. That's our rule. Uh, okay. Let's uh, – we got some crazy, crazy breaking news absolutely insane i I mean there was some big pac-12 news to get to which i'm going to get to but this whole nick saban versus jimbo fisher thing is absolutely amazing i mean just we couldn't ask for better college football content in the middle of may than what we're getting right now the sec does it just mean more holy crap these guys are going at it uh there's there's these these unwritten rules, you know, you're not supposed to like talk trash about the other people, like with the honor among thieves kind of thing going on. Everyone down there in the SEC is cheating. Well, now they're getting called out for it. And uh, Nick Saban, if you didn't see, started it out, I think it was Tuesday night. Uh, was it? No, maybe it was Wednesday night because, yeah, we're recording this on a Thursday. Uh, at some kind of booster thing, he was talking along with the basketball coach and there was like a Q&A deal. Nick Saban's not a big NIL fan. Alabama doesn't have a collective going on, so they're not 
quote unquote, like paying players uh, to come to their school. Um, there's other schools that do have collectives, one of them being Texas A&M. And Nick Saban basically said, uh, we had the number two class. Nick, uh, Texas A&M had the number one class and they paid every player to get there. And it was a pretty big bombshell just calling him out like that. He also called out Deion Sanders and Jackson State uh, for, you know, giving a million dollars to a kid that was supposed to go to Florida State, one of the top players in the country. So he kind of uh, dropped a few bombs out there, which was, you know, interesting to hear. Jimbo Fisher, they call a press conference this morning at Texas A&M. I watched it live on uh, on Twitter, and, man, he just goes completely after Nick Saban, um, calling him like like some God complex thing, says he was a narcissist, says if you, you know, ask anyone that ever worked for him, you'll see how he does things. And my dad always told me, like, if someone tries to show you who, who they are, believe them. Um, just, I mean, he probably said 10 things that would have been front page news, you know, uh, in the newspaper days. And uh, went absolutely crazy on, on Saban and said that we didn't do anything wrong. We didn't buy any players. Uh, I don't know what collectives are. I mean, he, he kind of played um, dumb on all that stuff. Saban, as I was about to record this, came out on, he was on a Sirius XM radio and said, he had some apologies that he shouldn't have, um, you know, called anyone out or whatever. And it is, his main thing was uh, to, he doesn't like the collectives. And I mean, he's got some valid points. Like you're, you're not supposed to pay people to go to your school. And that's what the collectives are doing. They're paying people to go to the school. Now, the, the, you're not really technically breaking any rules, but um, that's essentially what's happening. Texas A&M was one of the first to do it. They're probably the best to do it. You know, we've seen Tennessee get in the in the game. People are getting in the game a little bit slower, but Texas A&M figured out that if you want to call it a loophole right away and jumped on it, and they were able to build you know the top recruiting class in the country. Now that might not last. It might not work next year because more people are going to catch up. But Saban seemed to be a little upset that Jimbo, and not necessarily him, but the collective at Texas A&M, the the power brokers at Texas A&M were able to figure this out early and jump in and and provide a whole bunch of money for these recruits. And they all chose Texas A&M and they had the best recruiting class we've ever seen. So he's you know made some sort of apology. He said, I should have never singled anyone out. That was a mistake. I apologize for that. Um, and he singled, you know, Jackson State out. He singled Texas A&M out. Um, and then uh, so Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, put out a statement. Basically, they both were verbally reprimanded. Uh, but it's just insane uh, what's going on here uh, in May. And, you know, and I I listened to some of the stuff what Saban said. And, you know, he had some interesting points about, you know, that you aren't supposed to be able to pay players to go to your school. And he said they didn't do that for anybody. They don't have a collective yet. Now, he didn't have to because – Alabama just, you know, the, oh, they win Heisman trophies. They win national championships. They've got first round draft picks all over the place. The system that was in place worked for Nick Saban. Now he's been great about adjusting to different systems, but this was a, this was a, this is a big adjustment. The college football landscape has completely changed. Texas A&M jumped on the rule changes first and, you know, end up beating Nick Saban and Alabama for it. Now they'll, they'll get there. They can put a big collective out there that I don't think that's going to be a problem. Um, but he doesn't really like it. And I think there's a bunch of coaches that don't, um, but that's just sort of like the way we're going now. Then unless someone steps in, uh, that, you know, the NCAA doesn't have, um, as far as their teeth, their chops are not, uh, you know, 
sustainable, right? I mean, there's just no way the NCAA can kind of enforce stuff. They're going to need like government help that you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, but I, you know, I sort of agree. I don't want to see high school players getting paid to go to a school when they get to the school. Yeah. Pay them all. You know, it, I, I think that's awesome that the that, that kids are going to get uh, money and all of that kind of stuff. But I don't know what the solution is, but man, this was absolute gold for, uh, I don't know if Dave's talking about it or not too, but absolute gold to hear two of the, you know, two guys that have won national championships in college football. There's not that many of them on the planet, head coaches going at each other like this. And uh, Jimbo did not mince words, man. And he, you know, Saban tried to call him. Jimbo was not taking his call. Their relationship is done. And uh, I know Greg Sankey was not happy about all this stuff. You don't want to see this public reprimand kind of stuff, but that's what happened. Uh, so kind of good stuff there. I'm sure you guys have followed along on Twitter and all that. Uh, if you love college football, hey, man, this is like, Soap opera college football in May. Like, we don't get this very often. So just kind of embrace it. You know, think back to 2020 where we had nothing. Now we got like Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher like throwing barbs at each other. It's 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 pretty amazing stuff. All right. So the big Pac-12 news. I'll give you another one. <clears throat> the uh, divisions, they're going bye-bye. Now, not full-on divisions aren't gone yet. Uh, I think John Wilner was predicting that divisions could go away even as early as September, but probably by 2023. But the the parts, the, the main reason for the divisions is to choose who's going to play in the conference championship game, the Pac-12 championship game, now held in Las Vegas. I was there last year for Utah, or earlier this year, for, uh, was it last year? Yeah, it was, no, yeah for, I'm sorry, it was last year, for, for Utah and Oregon, uh, absolute beatdown, and the Utes won their first Pac-12 championship and went to their first Rose Bowl. But what the conference is changing now, and this, I'm going to give George Klyovkov credit, the commissioner, because basically everyone was just waiting on the requirement from the NCAA that they had, that to host a championship game, you needed to have divisions. Unless you had 10 teams like the Big 12 and you did a round robin, then you didn't need divisions. So that was like a caveat. But if you had 12 teams or more, you needed to have divisions and then have the two team, you know, one division play the other division winner, and then the winner gets to go to the championship game. Well, with the expanded playoff and wanting to get more teams in, it behooved the the uh, would behoove all of the the uh, conferences to just have their two best teams play and not have the risk of uh, a you know a team a, a weaker team from a, a one division having a great day and then beating the best team in the conference and representing the conference and not making the playoffs. It, it, it'd be a whole mess. So they would rather have another high quality game. The two best teams play each other at the end, even if it's a repeat and, and do it that way. So the Pac-12 wanted to do this obviously because they essentially had the press conference ready. Uh, when we found out on Wednesday that the NCAA had changed that rule, uh, they, they backed off of that. They, they rolled it back. You didn't have to have divisions to host a championship game. And like instantaneously, you get a press release from San Francisco that says the Pac-12 conference today announced a change to how it will determine the teams that qualify for the Pac-12 football championship game. Starting in 2022, the two teams with the highest conference winning percentage will face off in the championship game. Now, this is the line. That's the news, right? And I feel like people didn't discuss this enough right away. But... The next line of the press release was what just kind of caught me. 
This change would have resulted in a different Pac-12 football championship matchup in five of the past 11 years. So that means this rule, you know, sometimes you make a rule change and you're like, oh yeah, this 12, the, look at the last 11 years and it would have impacted things one time. You know, it's, it's usually like a, a minor sort of adjustment uh, and that's about it. Well, not for this one. Five of the 11 would have changed and that's a big deal. Um, you look at, you know, one of the reasons, if you look back at 2011, USC had the best record in the division in the South, but UCLA represented the South because USC couldn't go to the postseason. They faced number nine, Oregon in the championship game. Now, if UCLA would have won that one, you know, it's like your, your top 10 team loses. And then you have a team with like five losses or whatever UCLA had that year. I think they were seven and five or something. Um, representing the conference. So they want to eliminate that. Like 2011, it would have been uh, number four, Stanford, and number nine, Oregon. So Stanford was actually ranked in the AP ahead of Oregon, but Oregon had won the head-to-head that year. So year one, you would have had a different matchup. Stanford versus Oregon, both teams from the north. Year two, it was Stanford versus UCLA in the title game. It would have been Oregon versus Stanford again. You would have had a repeat. Um, So UCLA, the, the only two times they've made the uh, Pac-12 championship game, they wouldn't have under this new, um, the the new rule, the new legislation here. Uh, In 2015, Stanford represented the North, USC represented the South. Again, it would have been Stanford versus Oregon. Oregon would have got in over USC. They had a better conference winning percentage. Uh, Then again, in 2018, interesting one, Utah made it to the championship game. They they played Washington. It would have been an Apple Cup rematch. Uh, Washington State would have made it in over Utah. And then in 2020, which is a weird one anyway, because USC won the South and Washington won the North. And then Washington couldn't play because of COVID. So Oregon gets to go. And then Oregon ends up winning and they, they win the conference, even though they finished second in the division uh, in the North division. But it should have been USC versus Colorado under the new rule because Colorado had a better conference winning percentage uh, than either Oregon or Washington. So those are the five years um, where it would have changed. And uh, I just I think that's a really interesting um, move. And I, you know, I think it's a good one from the conference. Uh, as far as like divisions going, you know, the whole point of the divisions was for that. So I, I don't think there's any questions that the divisions are going to go away. What are they going to go with as far as, you know, how the, the scheduling is going to be structured? What's the new scheduling model going to be? I think they're going to stick with nine for now, unless the big 10 backs off. It's going to be hard for inventory to do, you know, like eight uh, conference games going forward, just trying to schedule new ones until like that scheduling model comes into, uh, you know, they have the agreement with the ACC and the big 10. If they come up with something there, then maybe you can go to eight, but I don't think they're going to go to eight. Otherwise, uh, will there, and some other people have come up with, you know, an interesting pod model, which I like. Uh, it makes sense to me where you have like the California schools are in a pod, the Northwest schools are in a pod, and then the, the mountain and desert schools are in a pod. So four teams, three pods, you play those teams every year, and then you kind of take turns playing the other schools. And uh, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. I like that one. Um, you know, it probably, I mean, yeah, I think like the mountain schools probably would have some issues uh, with it. Cause you know, they get to play in Los Angeles every year in this model. They, they wouldn't be able to, 
Um, you know, there, you get some a lot of people coming on the road games from LA for those, and then you being able to recruit Southern California. So that probably would be the biggest pushback, uh, maybe from the mountain schools. The um, and it's interesting. I'd, I'd read. A, I don't remember. I, I don't remember what column it was in, but apparently, uh, I think it was John Wilner actually. Uh, condition for for Colorado, a condition joining the conference in 2011, they were guaranteed one game in Los Angeles every year. So something like that, you would probably have to get rid of. And you know, Colorado, if Colorado's a great member of the the Pac-12, but I don't think they would have like the political clout to say we're not doing it this way if, if it's best for everybody. Like this, the uh, getting rid of the divisions. What had unanimous unanimous support from all of the presidents. Uh, I think there's going to be some people making some concessions uh, when they go to a new scheduling model. Now, well, we know the schedule for this year, so the schedule thing could happen as early as next year potentially. I think they have the the agreement goes out to 2026. I think or what the schedules are are planned out, but I think you could rip that up and go forward with the new model. And I and everything you know about George Klyovkov, that seems to be what. Uh, he would want to do. So um, I don't know if that's the best model. I kind of like the pod model. Um, and then, you know, you're not going to have Stanford and USC plan week two all the time. Some of the stupid stuff that happens with his schedule. And, uh, you know, because every team has to miss two, uh, two teams. But, you know, sometimes it's weird. You're only playing, you don't play, the South doesn't play the team from the North as much and, and vice versa. Uh, so I think it just opened things up a little bit more. So I, I'm guessing that's the way they're going to go, but I don't know we'll have to kind of wait, wait and see. But as of now, divisions are gone. So if you have a situation like we had for many years where like Stanford, Oregon were the two best teams in the conference, they could play each other again in the championship game this year, the two, you know, two of the favorites look like Utah and USC. So if those two teams end up being the best two, in the conference, they would play each other again uh, in the in the championship game in Las Vegas. Also, some other news. Uh, so the NCAA for the next two years got rid of the initial counter limit of twenty five scholarships. So if you're not familiar with the recruiting aspect of it, there's two there's two numbers that programs have to abide by as far as scholarships go. And it's a headcount sport. There's no partial scholarships, and it starts you know the end of summer, beginning of fall, and it goes for the full calendar year. Um, so you can have 85 total scholarship players on your roster. So if you, you know, start fall camp with these 85 guys on scholarship, they're the guys until next fall, you know, until the next, uh, you know, end of, I think it's the end of August when it all kicks in or whatever, but, um, th- that can't change. Like those are your 85 guys. Uh, if you only have 80, you can add people and get up to 85, but once you get to 85, you can't, you can't swap anyone out during the season. It's those are your 85 guys. And then it'll reset uh, the following, you know, the end of the following summer. But there's also initial counters, uh, which means every recruiting cycle you can only f- you can only sign 25 scholarship players. Now relax that a little bit this year, because of the transfer portal became so big, they would allow you uh, seven extra scholarships if you can. You know, if you had seven guys leave from the portal, you could bring in seven more. The problem is that we've seen a lot of issues where. Players, I mean, so many players were leaving, and it, you can't replace as many. And there's little loopholes to kind of get around that 25 scholarship number. If you didn't sign 25 the year before, you could have early enrollees take those scholarships from the previous year. And then we saw USC utilize this um, during their sanctions when they were down uh, to 15 scholarships per year, initial counters. 
you could blue shirt guys, like bring guys in and have them count towards next year. So, and you know, there's gray shirting and things like that. Uh, I think most of that stuff is going to go away now. For the next two years, you can sign as many players as you want. Uh, now there's some, you know, there's going to be unintended consequences. We saw, you know, Nick Saban was one of those guys. They would sign a whole bunch of guys, like 36 guys, only intending to keep, you know, 30 of them and maybe gray shirt uh, some of them. Uh, guys that didn't really quite work out. You sort of would like take more than you needed and then cut the ones you didn't need. Uh, didn't look as good when you saw them on campus. Um, they want to kind of avoid that, but this is really just to try to build people's rosters back up. I think there, I read one example about Kansas. Uh, it was like 2013 or something. I think they were down to like 40 scholarship players or something. And it just, you can't, to get back up to 85 from a low number like that, uh, I think like Charlie Weiss signed a bunch of like Ju- Juco guys to like f- win right now. And then those guys come off the books and you didn't have enough high school players backing them up. And um, so, yeah, to, to get back up to 85 when you're down that low and you can only sign 25 a year, it's going to take you years. This is going to allow teams to you know rebuild their rosters a lot faster. Of course, the tr- uh, transfer portal allow teams to build their rosters faster as well bringing in more guys, but now the limitations on that, you know, you can bring in as many guys as you want, as long as you're under um, 85. So that's, uh, that's kind of some other NCAA news that was out there. So there's kind of some big newsy stuff, but the, uh, the Nick Saban uh, Fisher and uh, Jimbo Fisher stuff, like sort of trumped everything. There's also, you know, the NCAA talked about trying to curb NIL, like similar to what Nick Saban was saying. There's a lot of people that kind of that want to see, some guardrails for this NIL. Uh, but you're seeing sports agents out there that have just been like crushing this, taking advantage of it. One sports agent said, I think this was, I forget what article this was from, but he just said, bring it. Uh, he said, the moment they come to interfere with one of my clients, the next day is the moment they'll get hit with an antitrust lawsuit. Um, that was from Mike uh, Caspino, who represents several football recruits and have landed six and seven figure deals with school specific booster collectives. He's saying they're saying there's a whole class of people, boosters, who can't participate in the market for athletes of NIL rights. That's like saying red-haired people can't buy meat. That's antitrust. So what the NCAA was saying is like, hey, our rule about boosters funneling money into the school for players still applies. So if you're a booster, you shouldn't be part of these collectives, which that's all the collectives are. Um, so I don't think there's going to be much to that. Um, they need to get some guardrails in there, but the fact that you know, all the talk is you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't get the genie back in the bottle. How are you going to do that? Once you've already started this, um, it's kind of crazy. Okay. Uh, let's see. Next up, we want to talk about, oh, there's a little bit of good news. You know, we've been kind of crushing um, Arizona State almost every week, right? Like there's bad things that have been happening. Well, they did get some good news. Emory Jones, uh, transfer from Florida. The quarterback, uh, he's going to ASU. So some positives there. You know, I think, yeah, there is, is the program reeling, but there's still going to be some players that have interest. Uh, you know, like I said, when I watched the spring game, there was a lot of positivity. And that was before a bunch of the guys transferred out of the program again after the spring game. Um, but we'll see if Herman and his staff are able to kind of convince some more players to come because they, they definitely need to fill some holes through the transfer portal. Um, I think this is still a program that's reeling, um, you know, terribly, but there was a little bit of good news. So I didn't want to only point out the bad ASU news. I wanted to point out some good stuff as well. 
All right, a few other things I want to get to uh, before I switch you, uh, let you get over to Dave and answering the questions. There was uh, the betonline.ag odds came out for winning uh, the the Pac-12 uh, conference, and it was pretty. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me as far as like, oh yeah, that's that's the that's the way the odds should go. And sometimes you're just kind of doing it for effect. Um, but I wanted to discuss it. Uh, Oregon was the favorite to win the conference at plus 210. Now, these came out before the whole division thing went away, so they could change a little bit. They have USC second at, at plus 225, and then Utah third at plus 375. So I think Utah should be the favorite. Uh, probably USC, Utah, USC, and then Oregon. Um, Oregon's the, a really talented roster coming back. Uh, there's a little bit more unproven on the coaching side. Um, so we'll kind of see there, but that would just kind of be my, um, the way that I would, uh, what I would, uh, you know, uh, handicap that race. The weird, the, the, probably the weirdest one is Arizona state being fourth, uh, tied for fourth with UCLA at plus 900. I don't have UCLA pro- problem with UCLA being there, but ASU, like, I mean, that program is reeling. I don't know what the heck they were thinking there. And then Arizona being way below, like f- by far the worst and Colorado, uh, Arizona's plus 40,000 and Colorado's plus 15,000. Like you could certainly reverse those. Um, they got Stanford at plus 8,000, like no, no freaking way that program's, uh, in the free fall. So, uh, value, I think the value would probably be Washington state at plus 3,300 and Oregon state plus 4,000. I think Oregon state could make a run in the North and the North should be pretty open. Um, you know, who knows that? Me saying that means Oregon's just going to thump everybody. But I think it could be a little more open. And if Oregon State can take a leap, who knows? That, that might not be a bad uh, flyer to take. Uh, what would you bet? Yeah, you bet like 10 bucks and make 400 on Oregon winning the North. I would take that bet. That's not too bad. Uh, a few, the, the odds of opening, some of the odds for the opening game weekend, you know, opening weekend for college football did came, come out as well. Uh, so I'll, I'll list you a couple of those. Colorado is playing TCU to open the season. They are an eight and a half point underdog. Yeah. I mean, that, I think I would take TCU in that one. I, I don't think Colorado is going to be very good. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about TCU, but my instincts would say go TCU and lay the points. Uh, Utah and Florida are a pick them. Uh, I think I would pick Utah on this one, even though it's on the road in Gainesville. Uh, I'm, I'm going to roll with the Utes. I think they can come in there and, uh, and do well. USC is a 34-point favorite over Rice. I don't know if Lincoln Riley's first game, like who knows how that's going to go. Uh, I wouldn't touch that one. UCLA is a 31.5-point favorite over Bowling Green. Uh, I don't know much about Bowling Green, but I mean, I could see Chip Kelly getting up 28 and just stopping. So I, I think I'd probably take the points in that one. Oregon State's a slight favorite over Boise State, uh, one and a half points. So I think I'd go with the uh, the Beavs there. Uh, Washington, 23 and a half point favorite over Kent state. I would just take Kent state because Washington lost to a crap team last year at FCS school. So, uh, I don't know it's, it's, you know, DeBoer's first year, get more than three touchdowns and points against anybody. I could probably take them. Uh, Arizona is getting almost a touchdown against San Diego state, six and a half points there. I'd probably take those points. Um, I think Arizona's going to be a lot better. And then Oregon, uh, getting 16 and a half on the road at Georgia. Georgia's awesome and everything. They lost a lot of dudes. It's the opener. We saw what Oregon did. 
early last year against Ohio State. Uh, I think I would take those points too, just to be like, yeah, you know, 60 and a half points for a pretty good team that's, you know, potential a top 10 team. I know Georgia's amazing, but uh, I'll stick the points. Screw it, you know. And if, if Georgia waxes them by 28, you're like, all right, I was wrong. Uh, there's also some national championship odds. Uh, DraftKings put these out, saw today. So um, Alabama's a favorite, plus 200, followed by Georgia's plus 340, and Ohio State plus 450. You get down, uh, number six is USC, plus 3,000. So that seems a little uh, little aggressive there for USC, first-year head coach off a 4-8 and eight team to be the number six uh the sixth best odds to win the national championship. This is not like to make the playoffs. This is to win the championship. They're ahead of Oklahoma, plus 3,500. Uh, the Pac-12 teams, other Pac-12 teams, you got Utah at plus 4,500 to uh, win the title. You know, throw a couple bucks on that maybe. Oregon plus 5,500 and UCLA plus 10,000. So those are all the odds there. And then as we were, as I was talking, we have some more. I need to get the Death Star music because uh, for David, you know, for sure, whenever USC does something like USCE, uh, you guys might be familiar with Jordan Addison, the uh, Belindikoff winning uh, wide receiver from the University of Pittsburgh, formerly from the University of Pittsburgh. Looked like he could have gone to Alabama. He officially visited Texas. He was at USC this past weekend, put an Instagram photo of him at Lincoln Riley's pool overlooking the sunset in Palos Verdes from that $17 million mansion. Well, a lot of speculation on where he's going to go. USC actually started classes on Wednesday. So I thought there would be a decision fairly soon because, you know, if you want to get into summer school right now and work with your teammates and stuff, you want to do it as early as possible. Uh, but he tweeted out, uh, the last few weeks have been very difficult. I struggled with my decision as to whether I should exercise my right to enter the portal. Student athletes have not always had that opportunity and I made that choice. I am and always will be grateful to the University of Pittsburgh, to Coach Narduzzi, all my coaches, past and present, the faculty, the fan supporters, but especially to all my teammates. I love them. Winning an ACC championship is ours forever. Those true friendships will last. A part of me will always be H2P. I have now carefully considered the advice of my family and close friends and fully weighed both the risks and benefits associated with my decision. I also respect that others may make a different choice. But for me, I will continue my full development as a student athlete by enrolling at USC. Much love always, J.A. So big news there. Um, USC, you know, has a, you know, they have a pretty good receiver room already. But right now, uh, they just, <laughs> what was the best receiver in the country last year uh, to the Arsenal? So some of those odds you saw might change a little bit. Uh, you know, adding a guy like uh, Addison, um, pretty crazy uh, what's going on there. But yeah, the uh, former uh, Belitnikov Award winner, the, the reigning Belitnikov Award winner is now coming um, to USC. So, all right. So that was that. There was one um, voicemail question I want to get to. I think Dave touched on it, but I would, I'll play the voicemail so you guys can hear it. And then uh, I'll be out. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Perk. I'm um, just kind of going off some of the predictions and stuff you guys had with uh, the Pac-12 and specifically the Pac-12 South this year. I was wondering, um, which would you guys find more surprising if, uh, if Utah really underperformed and 
just didn't win the division or if USC really overperformed and won the Pac-12. Um, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, Perk. I mean, things might change um, with, uh, you know, as far as like Jordan Addison signing with USC. Uh, I still think Utah is probably the favorite. Uh, USC has some more questions to answer on the defensive side of the ball. But I think the most likely scenario now is USC and Utah finish one and two in the conference, and then they get to play each other. Now, USC has to go play in Salt Lake City. So as of now, I think my prediction is still going to be Utah is the best record of the conference, but I think I'm going to have USC as the second best record of the conference. And then those two teams play each other for the championship game. Um, could go differently. I don't think I'd be shocked uh, either way. But man, USC has uh, they've 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 added a lot of talent uh, to this roster, and they you know since spring ended, they've added six players now with Addison, but um, four of them have been on the defensive side of the ball. So they had offensive linemen, and they got Addison. So I think they're still trying to get some help on the defensive side. They had a, a really, really, really bad defense last year. And how much can that ch- turn around? Uh, you know, we'll kind of have to wait and see. But all right. So that's going to wrap things up for me. I uh, hope you got, got your fill of all the news around college football, my opinions on that. Dave's going to be back here right after this break, answering your questions. Hi, everyone. Dave Woods here. It's not the normal start to this show, but what are you going to do? Ryan has probably set this period up very well, this this segment, if you want to call it such. Um, And I don't know what he said. And I'm probably not going to ever know what he said, because I'm not going to listen to the first half of this show. Uh, He's given me a few things that he wants me to talk about, um, namely answering a whole load of your questions. Um, But first, Chip Kelly. Um, came out this week uh, that Keenan Lowe, a former Oregon Duck, um, divulged that Chip Kelly's placards, those fun little signs that he had on the sideline with the pictures of random people and animals and anthropomorphic objects, uh, were meaningless. Absolute uh, horse pucky, as you might say. Um, you wouldn't. Nobody would say that, but you, you get what I'm saying. Um, so that's fun. Um, I think that's sort of, uh, maybe true, maybe not. Um, I don't know. I remember reading some stuff about what they actually indicated and, uh, like tempo related stuff. Maybe that was just all horse pucky. Maybe not, but, um, fun little wrinkle, um, which, you know, Chip Kelly largely doesn't do anymore, but it's, uh, you know, nice to look back at a time when fun was part of the equation. Um, in other news, uh, Ryan may have talked about this yesterday, but uh, the Pac-12 uh, announcing that um, the league is going to a top two format for the championship game versus the division format will certainly be uh, interesting. Um, I think the main takeaway right now is until the schedule changes, um, it's going to have a limited effect. Uh, I think if you look back at the historical um breakdowns i think it was four times where it would have changed the pac-12 championship matchup from a 
north-south matchup to either a north-north or a south-south. So slightly less than half the time. Um, And I think this year, and and I I don't know if they'll change the schedule going forward, but uh, I brought this up earlier on my UCLA podcast. But what I would like to see is something like a flex scheduling or um, live scheduling after about the halfway point of the conference season to make the final run up to the championship game matter a little bit, maybe do it essentially a de facto Pac-12 playoff. Um, because you're otherwise you end up with unbalanced schedules. Um, like this year, if, if, if you posit that the North is weaker than the South, then Oregon um, probably has an unfair relative advantage over USC and UCLA in terms of making the championship game because they have to play a lesser schedule. Um, now, you know, that might change year to year, but um, if you did some sort of live scheduling where you can then essentially power rank and make the last four weeks of this of the Pac-12 slate pretty interesting um, in terms of what the matchups are, that would probably be better. Um, anyway, those are my thoughts on two topics um, that I don't know if Ryan shared anything on, and uh, I will never know. Now, on to your questions. All right, we last recorded a podcast like, uh, I don't know, long time ago. Um, so I'm going to go through quite a few questions, um, because I love you and I want you to feel good about this podcast. Um, all right. I think Ross was the last one we did last time. So this is from, uh, some 707 number. Dave questioning the sanctity of the maple bar as a canonical donut and slamming Pliny the Younger as a bad-tasting beer from somewhere near Thousand Oaks has me drifting toward a Team Ryan flip. I can take almost any slight, but when Dave mixes up the geographically inconsequential Santa Rosa Valley, population 3019, with the culturally inconsequential county seat of Sonoma, Santa Rosa proper, population 179,000, and then proceeds to hand over that town's only meaningful export outside of Charles Schultz, Jerry Robinson, and, probably, the actual Zodiac Killer. I mean, come on, do better, Dave. To add further insult to this, the beacon of reason on the POC completely ignored the primary context clue. Pliny is produced by the Russian River Brewing Company, which, because of his apparent map blindness, he no doubt believes is somewhere in West Boron. I guess it's a good thing Dave's not a 49er fan, because with his grasp of California geography, he would likely end up road tripping to Oxnard for a home game as it is located in the Santa Clara River Valley Basin. Oh, and while you're at it, Ryan, remind him that Tom Brady graduated from Sarah High in San Mateo, not Gardena. Professionally, I really think it would behoove Dave to familiarize with Northern Northern California, given Chipper's recruiting strategy and the extreme density of zero to two star prospects on offer in this half of the state every year. It's very likely he may just find himself at a few seven-on-sevens in places like Weed, Jimtown, or Bummerville in the very near future. God damn it, Dave. I love you. Don't make me invite you to Petaluma to teach you this lesson. This was a really good message that I think is a product of a um, misunderstanding either on... Well, a misunderstanding either on your part or, much more likely... Uh, misspeaking on my part. I am aware of Plenty of the Younger's uh, Russian River uh, Genesis. What I was alluding to was all of the bars in the Thousand, Oak er- Thousand Oaks area that get um, little deliveries of Plenty of the Younger. It was not technically a shot at my actual boss, Tracy Pearson, but also not not one, um, because he's the one who lives near Thousand Oaks and is constantly talking about um, Plenty 
and uh, such. It's also Pliny, isn't it? It's not Pliny. I think if we're going into the Latin, right? Anyone? Bueller? Anyway, very good message that I, I, I'm actually I'm ashamed of myself for clarifying because it was a really good message. All right, this is from Alfred Boomslang, which, again, like just has to be a euphemism or something. Uh, Summer Musings. Hello, champions. Hypothesizing how college football could adopt aspects of how other sports leagues run things can be a fun exercise, but at the end of the day, we all know it would never happen. For example, modeled after the, Engl- modeled after the English Premier League relegation of the worst Power 5 team and promotion of the best Group of 5 team. But I'm watching Formula 1 this weekend, and it got me thinking about how they have tried to level the playing field among the different teams. At first glance, amateur football and professional motorsports seem as unrelated as two sports can get, but one thing they shared in common was the rich getting richer. Until 2021, there was no budget cap in Formula 1. So the biggest teams, e.g. Mercedes, Red Bull, could throw money at their problems, and the smaller teams had no chance at winning championships. Since 2010, only Mercedes or Red Bull have won championships. Win more races, get more money, win more races, and on and on. Fans were getting tired and the sport was getting stale. Sound familiar? So 2021 was the first year F1 had a budget cap. The cap restricts performance-critical spending to level the playing field. Exclusions to the cap include marketing, team travel, driver salaries, and the top three salaries paid to team personnel. So bringing it back to college football, what if there was a similar budget cap? The main performance-critical spending restriction I see would be recruiting. Exclusions can include marketing and team travel. Now, with NIL, players' salaries can be whatever the player can get from a collective. Colleges could pay the head coach in the OC and DC whatever they want, but the rest of the staff's salaries would have to be within the budget cap. Therefore, a team like USC could still pay $10 million a year for Riley, still pump money into marketing, still pay for the best road trip accommodations, and still have deep NIL collective pockets to pay great players, but a team like Arizona could stay competitive in recruiting battles and facilities. In addition to the F1 budget cap, the time each team can spend using a wind tunnel and or computer simulations are restricted in reverse championship order, i.e. the best team has the least amount of time allowed, the worst team has the most amount of time allowed. So do that for practice time in college football. Say Utah only gets 90% the practice and film room time that Arizona gets, and maybe the time allowance order could be reset midway through the season. Now I know this is a long email and this will never happen, but it's the off season and you guys need something to talk about every week, so you're welcome. Keep it mediocre, Alfred Boomslang. It's a really interesting um, uh, uh, spectrum of thought. You know, it's a it's a really interesting thing to think about all the different ways that you could um, cap certain things to enhance parity, to enhance um, competitive balance. Uh, I would think <clears throat> so. If I'm if I'm um, Looking at it, the the amount of money spent on like assorted levels of staff underneath the head coach and the coordinators is probably the thing that I would argue is one of the um, most significant diminishing returns uh, levels of spending. Um, like how much you're spending on your GAs or whatever, or not your GAs, but on your um, analysts and stuff like that. I mean, at a certain level, I mean, how much can you break down film? Um, how much can you watch recruits do stuff in their high school practice film? Um, because that's what a lot of these analysts are doing all day. Um, so I don't know if, if limiting that spending would have as much of an impact on competitive balance. I think the reality is as much as I want it to be a relatively free market, I think if you're looking for it from a competitive balance standpoint, um, capping what can be spent in terms of, um, 
NIL in terms of, I mean, the reality is you can't do it, I think, within the structure of NIL. I think you would have to call it what it is, and these are salaries, um, and treat them as actual employees of the university. Um, and in that sense, cap it as you have this pool of money to participate. But to do that, you actually have to have a governing body that works, um, you know, sort of like the NFL and Major League Baseball and the NBA, and, and college football doesn't have that. Um, so I think you're right in that the reality is they wouldn't be able to do that, but I think that's the only way to actually get competitive balance at the level where it matters. Um, recruiting budgets outside of that matter, but it's, again, um, if you're at Alabama, um, you know, your recruiting budget can be a couple of bucks and you're still going to get players, where if you're at Arizona and your recruiting budget is, you know, a billion dollars a year, well, if it's just for recruiting, meaning like just flying coaches to different places, it's not actually going to make that huge of an impact. Um, the money going to players is where the biggest imbalance is, and that's where it's going to be hardest to regulate. But I think that's where you're going to find um, ways to increase competitive balance. I guess you could also do it at the higher level coaching positions and just make that capped. But uh, again, getting anyone to agree to that would be hard. But a good question. Anybody else have any thoughts? Please chime in with them. Uh, for what else could be capped uh, monetarily. This is from John and Brea. My Wildcats. Dear Ryan and Dave, I haven't been this optimistic about Arizona Wildcat football since Scooby Wright won the Bidneric Award and finished ninth in Heisman voting. Those were the days. But those days are back. Last year, the Wildcats lost 11 games, but only by a total of 178 points. This means they were roughly 26 plays away from being undefeated. Do you believe that Jaden Delora, Teoli, T. Tia Owali'i, Savea, Hunter Eccles, and T-Mac are each capable of making seven plays. Bear down, John and Brea. Yeah, baby. We're all on the Wildcat train. They're going to go from 1-11 to 11-1, baby. John's with me. Who else is with me? All right, this is from Andrew. Uh, good day. This question is mostly for Dave, but I would love to hear Ryan's input as well. Dave, you seem to be pretty opinionated, cynical, and pessimistic, and I would like to use that energy and hear about mundane things that bug you. What is a word or phrase that the general public uses incorrectly that grinds your gears? Love to hear your answers. Have a delightful day. Andrew, great question. Um, so I'm I'm a little bit... Um, God, what's a good word for it? Um uh, a little up my own ass, but also um, a little bit more um, looking. I, I look to uh, critique the critique. So I don't have a problem with many things that people say. Um, what I have a problem with is people who correct what other people say, particularly if it's um, or what they write, particularly if it's um, incredibly pedantic. Um, so a big one that I really pisses me off when people get corrected for including a preposition at the end of a sentence. Uh, that is not English grammar. English grammar has had prepositions at the end of sentences for basically the entire idea of its run as a modern language, uh, because that's the way the language works. Um, when you try to reorient the sentence so it doesn't have a preposition at the end, often you will end up with a messed up sentence that doesn't sound right. Um, but people, uh, in the, I think it was 19th century, um, uh, decided that Latin grammar needed to apply to English, which is where you came up with that very, very stupid rule that everyone heard in in high school and, and before that was, uh, you can't end a sentence in a preposition. Nonsense. Bullshit. Not true. You can, you should. Lots of sentences sound better with a preposition at the end. 
Um, so just generally stuff like that. Um, uh, most of my stuff is associated with written and written critiques. So people who um, aggressively and pointedly try not to use an Oxford comma, it's all very stupid. Uh, it increases clarity. It's the number one thing with all language is that it increased clarity and that it sound right. Um, and I do mean that when you say it, does it sound like English or does it sound like something that is written? All language, I feel, even formal writing, should sound like it can be said. Um, and if it can't be said, it's it's fucked up in some way and you need to fix it. Um, and often what has happened to it, it has been um, maladapted for, uh, to fit some grammatical construct that has no meaning in modern English. So that's my treatise on uh, that. It's more of a critique of... Um, uh, pedantic, but in and itself, it sounds very pedantic. It's kind of my gift. All right. Uh, this is an email that we apparently missed from Ricky, uh, or yet another Duck fan, sorry. Hey there, guys. I know we're in the depth of the offseason, but as spring football technically counts as football, I've got actual football questions for you. One, how in the world does a decent to great QB not want to play for Jonathan Smith? JT Daniels could have been a really good, could have been really good with him, but even in the world of quarterback talent in the portal at all times, how has someone not joined him? He has one of the best offenses in the conference, always aims for a killer run game. He has one of the best OL coaches in the conference and can turn someone like Jake Browning, our Lord and Savior on the pod, into someone who is getting paid by an NFL team to this day. Please help me understand what's going on. Do they need more potato salad money in Corvallis? Reezer can't have a chief spud NIL deal to get someone in the QB spot? Yeah, it's a good question. It's the same reason why I think, um, given Chip Kelly's history, um, they should always have uh, an NFL-level running back in Westwood. Um, they should always have an NFL-level tight end in Westwood. Um, Oregon State should have an NFL-level quarterback at all times because, okay, if you want to, if you want, you know, really good tutelage that can turn a noodle-armed guy into, you know, somebody who can make an NFL practice squad. Why not Jonathan Smith? Um, it's just not the way it works a lot of times. Um, but I think if he, you know, he's been there, what, five years now? If he puts together another couple of seasons of really good quarterback development, because it's not just, you know, the Jake Browning thing. I mean, Jake Luton, um, I could be wrong. Did he, was he in the NFL last year? I don't watch that much NFL, but I think he was. Um, but these dudes, like, he, he's turning out dudes who were not NFL prospects into NFL players. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think put together another couple of years of it, and I think he'll have his rep pretty much built. Um, but, yeah, it should happen. Two, I'm hearing a ton of USC hype, and I've seen their work in the transfer portal to understand a little bit. They stole my team's porn, porn stachioed uh, running back in Travis Dye. What I think they're missing are OL and DL. I don't care how good your quarterback is if your OL can't stop anybody from putting him on the ground. I also don't understand what anyone saw in USC's defense last year to think, yeah, they're close. Help me to understand, POC, is there something I'm missing, or is this perennial Texas is back, but with the legal pot and more insufferable celebrities? This would have been a good, great question for Ryan to answer, but I'm not going to give it to him. Um, my understanding for what he said is that the OL should be decent enough. The defensive line needs some help. Um, they might still get some help. Um, but yeah, the defense is still the question mark. I think offensively, everyone is pretty much sold that it's going to be a very good offense, um, which stands to reason. I think... That offensive scheme will mitigate some talent issues up front, um, and they'll just be getting the ball out quicker. Um, Caleb Williams is really good. They'll have a good running game. They'll have good wide receivers. 
Um, and I think the offensive line, from what Ryan has said, is going to be okay. Um, so I think it's defense, and the defense could be absolute ass again. We don't know. Um, and that's probably the big thing to, to, you know, that's the question mark heading into the season. And then he says, I tried to give you football questions. Sorry if that's too much. Here's a pair of non-football questions. Dave, why do you let UCLA basketball hurt you like this? It's the hope that kills you, don't you know? So I've thought about this. Um, I've gotten very... So here's the thing. I went... Um, so I was pretty into, like, as a fan, UCLA football through, like, 2014. And then it slowly just started to, you know, the more era dwindled away. And I've basically gone eight years of more or less just snarking on it and not being emotionally invested. I went 2009 when they lost to Villanova was probably the last time I was like really emotionally invested in UCLA basketball until uh, whatever that was, the end of Mick Cronin's first year where they were starting to look really good and then the pandemic hit. Um, I don't know. Just I was I was I was ready to get hurt again. Um, and you know, I think at a fundamental level, I, I, I was a, I was a, a nutcase fan for a long, long time. So, you know, it's putting those shoes back on, they're comfortable, they still fit. Um, and you know, if there's occasional nails that poke out of the soles from bad cobbling, um, you know, that's okay too. And that's what it is. Um, cause I think when UCLA basketball has a good coach, it's mostly enjoyable. And then it's absolutely devastating, uh, for like, you know a week uh when they lose and then uh then you just you know cycle back up it's like watching any good thing um it's uh you know it's half pain ryan and dave if you had to donate twenty dollars of my money and potentially twenty dollars of my employer's money to a charity of your choice what would you choose and why gosh oh i don't know um ryan would probably pick a food bank of some sort um, he does meals on wheels, which is a really good service. Um, for me, I mean, I, I'm kind of a, a prisoner of the moment. I would probably donate to some, uh, uh, women's healthcare funds right now. Um, one that's really good. Well, another thing, uh, not women's healthcare funds, uh, would be the, the, um, what the EDSBS, uh, charity bowl donates to refugee resettlement. That's kind of a uncritically good cause that I think everyone can get behind. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's there's no shortage of charitable organizations to give your money to that are good and do a good thing. Um, and uh, if you know if if you can do anything out there, um, uh, establish a stronger central government that can distribute it for you. There you go. All right, uh, Frank in Sacramento. I bet the over on USC. USC is rated high and just right going into 2022. Had Helton not been fired, the Trojans would have gone 7-5 in 2021. Helton was never as bad as 4-8 and eight at USC. He stunk as a coach and we're glad he's gone, but Riley will sleep to 9 wins because he's not starting from that big a hole. Bet the over. All right. Uh, hey guys, you and all POC listeners in for beers on May 14th at 12. You still just have to pick the place and show up. So that was five days ago. So I would guess that, no, we are not in for beers on that day. We did talk about this, but then we didn't even record a show last week. So, sorry. We'll try again. When we're together. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Perk. I'm just kind of going off. Oh, this is a message. Uh, basically, what he's saying is he's going off the predictions. We had the Pac-12 um, as mostly the Pac-12 South this year. Which would we find... 
All right, so which teams would we be surprised if they really underperformed and didn't win the division, or which teams would we be surprised if they overperformed and won the Pac-12? Um, I mean, I don't. I think that's what he's saying, and if so, uh, I'd be very surprised if Utah wasn't very good this year, and I'd be very surprised if Colorado won the league. Um, those are probably the two. I think Utah's going to be the best team, and I think Colorado's going to be the worst. Uh, this is from Jesse. A question for the ages, my dear podcasters. It's off-season, and in between spring camp and fall camp, there, when there's just not that much going on, so I figured I'd write in a question with a Marco bent that allows for either a one-sentence answer or a 45-minute rift-turned manifesto. In today's college football, what's the most underutilized edge that allows a team with mid-level talent to threaten top-talent teams? Mike Leach's air raid at Washington State comes to mind. Consistently, that was a no-star offensive line, and they figured out a way to win. Or UCLA Today, the Chip Kelly era is all about proving some PhD-level thesis that big people beat up little people and that the athletic pass-catching tight end is both recruitable and highly effective. Indeed, our pal Chip has done a great job at UCLA with the tight ends. Maybe not the rest of it. But the theory here is basically that if you can recruit to a strategy, execute, then there's a shot that a team of developed three-star median recruits could play with top talent and win. So what else around the country do you see? Give me some X's and O's. Two back sets? It's either this or I have to face the brutish reality of listening to the news while I pretend to work from home while yo-yoing my life savings on leveraged cryptocurrency and shorting the American dream. Give us something good. Your audience demands it. Let this be a treatise on the option because the triple option is still the thing to do if you have serious talent deficiencies. Um, it's tricky. It's weird. Teams don't know how to prepare for it. Um, if you get really good at it, even if they are prepared for it, you can go a long way. If you add talent to it, it gets even better. Like it's a, it's a kind of a do everything thing that um, a lot of teams got away from largely because it doesn't project to the NFL and it got hard to recruit to it. Um, but the triple option is the ultimate equalizer. Um, it's why service academies can occasionally be very, very good, even with mid-tier talent. Um, and it's why, uh, you know, many dynasties were built on triple option. Um, outside of that, I still think there's an advantage to be gained with tempo. Um, just simply going faster. Um, I think all the stuff about rules changes and stuff has some validity. Like it is a little bit harder to do now, but it's not the, the dead, the dead letter that Chip Kelly apparently thinks it is. Um, lots of teams can still gain an advantage from going faster. Um, but I would say the triple option is really the, still the, the gold standard for, um, staying competitive when you have a talent disadvantage. Um, and I wish more teams, particularly at the bottom of power five leagues would think about it. Um, you know, I, I, I advocated for that when Arizona was hiring coaches the last two times I advocated for it when Oregon state was hiring coaches. And it's turning out that, you know, that was probably stupid, at least for Oregon state. We'll see on Arizona. Um, but I think there's there's value to be gained at the power five level doing that um, because you can you can you can knock off some um, some good teams. I mean Georgia Tech was they had some good seasons under Paul Johnson. They had some really bad ones, but it's Georgia Tech. I mean they're never very good, but they had some really really good seasons under him. All right, uh, this is from Bob from Alaska. Hi, y'all. Uh, Bob from Alaska again. Sorry, it's been a long time since I've asked a question. So what would be your guys' best way to divide the divisions? Would you want to make pods of three or four? Would you want no divisions but have one or two rivalry games? If there were two or more rivalry games, who would be each team's rivals? Um, I'm down for having... Um, I guess the way it would work would probably be like a pod 
structure for maybe the first three games, and then you have like a, I don't know, like a rotation where you play one or two against the other pods. And then I want like something like live scheduling for the last four games where it's just, okay, we're going to now figure out who truly our best teams are. Um, might not even need to be the last four games, but you know what I mean? Just something that you're, uh, uh, take advantage of the fact that we all learned during COVID that you don't need that much time to prepare for a specific opponent. Like a couple of days is enough, but you give them a week and plenty. Um, so yeah, I would want to see something like that. Um, I don't really care about the format of the divisions or the pods. Um, don't think it matters. I don't think you need to do it necessarily. Um, but make it so that everyone's playing everybody uh, every, you know, couple years. Um, so, you know, in that first four or five games, make it, you know, mostly new opponents every year, and then each team gets a rival. All right. Um, and then that's it. That's all we got. Oh, wait, no, there's no one. Uh, this came in just as I was talking. This is from Eric. Uh, new coaches. When teams hire a new coach, the stories from the spring usually focus on excitement about them doing things the previous regime didn't. For instance, we heard a lot from Eugene how Oregon is actually throwing downfield and lining up under center for third, fourth, and inches. But as the season goes on, what complaints do you think you'll, we'll hear from fans about Land Danning, Lincoln Riley, and Kalen DeBoer about specific things they liked better from the previous regime, regardless how successful they otherwise are? I'm sure some Bama message boards still complain about some part of Saban's play calling. Wazoo excluded from the above list as we all should be glad there won't be any QAnon-inspired rants from the, from the head coach. Unrelated, but as an Oregonian East Coaster listening to your podcast talk about offices overlooking water treatment plants while in an Uber from LAX stuck in rush hour downtown LA traffic was certainly an interesting start to the trip. Keep up the work. Eric. Um, okay, so specific things that uh, Washington fans will want about Jimmy Lake is nothing. Literally nothing. Um, so I think you can throw Kalen DeBoer into the everything's gravy at this point. Uh, Lincoln Riley and Land Danning, that'll be the question. Uh, I think for Lincoln Riley, um, it'll be the uh, uh, maybe the access, like the ability to know what's going on in the team, you know, on a constant basis. But I can't see anything on the field that they're going to prefer Clay Helton to Riley. Um, there might be more pronounced disappointment earlier on um, if Riley doesn't live up to the to the billing, but I think it'll just be the lack of access because he's not going to open up the program to the level that Clay Helton did. And then with Land Danning, um, I don't know. I don't know because I th always thought uh, Oregon was kind of underachieving on both ends with uh, with Mario Cristobal. So unless it gets more pronounced under uh, our man Land Danning, I don't know. Um, I would say there was a, a physicality element to Oregon's offense under uh, Cristobal. You know, they were sometimes to its detriment. They were like trying to grind for four yards when that that talent should have been able to, you know, explode for 12. Um But there was an element of like real physicality. We're going to out tough you, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm sure you know, Land Danning is bringing that from Georgia too, but maybe that could be something like, oh, we can't grind out games the way we were able to under Mario Cristobal as if that's a good thing. Uh, I could see that being a critique. All right. Well, that is it for me. Um, that was a tight 30 minutes. Um, and uh, next week, we promise we will get in the same room and record a lovely show that you all can be proud of. But for now, I love you. I hope you're well. I hope you're happy. I hope you're, um, you know, just living your absolute best life. 
And uh, we'll talk to you again next time. Bye.